The book of Revelation, chapter 22. We read of that glorious invitation of the gospel that comes in connection to Christ's exalted state as Redeemer and King of heaven and earth. Revelation, chapter 22, beginning in verse 16. I'll read just two verses. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, even now, the invitation of the gospel has gone forth into the world. And there is even now in countless sanctuaries across this world and throughout this day, sun up to sundown, in nearly every tribe and tongue, that glorious call to come to those who are thirsty, to those who are hungry, do not remain thirsty any longer. Lord, that we would come to Christ and find in him the living water, all that is needed for salvation and satisfaction. Lord, would you draw our hearts away from those empty cisterns that can hold no water. And may we look to you this morning for nourishment and refreshment We ask this then in the name of the author and perfecter of our faith, Christ, who is our Lord. Amen. I will say, it may appear, that I have enjoyed my time in Revelation so much, I am giving one of those long goodbyes, but I'm not. Though I'm enjoying, especially in the chapter we're in now, chapter 22, a slower pace... For these are the last things that Christ has said to his church in his word. John writes at the end of the apostolic age, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, and he writes to a church militant, especially militant, as they are suffering under the miseries, the tortures of men like Nero and the emperors of Rome having been betrayed by their very same people, the Jews and the Jewish leaders of their day, the question for the early church was, will we survive? And the answer to the question, will the church survive, is Christ is on the throne, which is, of course. And not only will the church survive, but the testimony, if we need it, that goes beyond even that of Scripture as fulfillment to the promise and the exalted nature of the vision of Christ upon the throne is that we are meeting for worship in a place that is remote from Jerusalem, thousands of miles removed. 
and that there are now in nearly every tribe, tongue, and nation in this world children of the true and living God who confess the true faith, who gather for worship, some of them upon threat of death. That should put your commute into some perspective on Sundays, right? Oh, right? There are those who confess the name of Christ, and if they do so in the public square, or they are seen walking to church, may suffer death and torture. And so revelation is for some the means of waking them up to hope. For those who are apathetic, it should be a means of waking us up to further commitment. Because even as Christ is on the throne, there is this resounding, reverberating invitation to come. Now, when I was growing up in Douglasville, Georgia, they built this telephone pole not far from our house with these speakers that ran about six feet at the top of it. And it was a warning system. And every once in a while, you would hear the the warning sound and they would say, don't worry, this is just a test. Well, in Revelation chapter 22, just prior to what we read here, there is a loud voice from heaven, but it does not say this is just a test. And Christ says to those who are living in Jerusalem, the days of repentance are at an end. Your time is nearly over. Come quickly. And even now, as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth, you are to hear it as, this is not a test. For Christ may call you to himself even tomorrow, even here in worship. Now that would have been something else indeed, right? If I had said that. Now that's what I'm not trying to do, to manipulate you. But to see the Spirit work in your hearts to bring you to a place where you have no confidence in princes, no confidence in chariots, no confidence in tomorrow. Even as I read those names of that genealogy, as you get older and you look at those dates, in fact the other day I read something as I'm of a certain number of years that if you were born in 1980, we are as close to 1980 now as it would have been in 1937. And I thought, like 1937 feels in so many ways like a very different age than the years that I... And it's because I know all of these years. But time moves like an ever-rolling stream. And though I, with great conviction, hold to the fact that God will tarry for quite some time in order to fill the city of God with a host of inhabitants that will outnumber the stars, that will outnumber the shore, the sand on the shore. You and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you've lived any a number of years, you've lived long enough to bury friends, bury family members, some of them and many of them too young, as we often say. But there is one whose kingdom endures forever. And until the gates of that city are shut 
at the end of the age of men to converts, there is this invitation. And it is an urgent pleading. Come. Come. And that is what I want to look at this morning. Three points. As it relates to Christ, he is David's son and David's Lord. That's the first point. David's son and David's Lord. The second, the bright and morning star. And in light of Christ's fulfillment as Messiah, the third point, an evangelistic invitation. And so David's son and David's Lord, the bright and morning star. And then lastly, an evangelistic invitation. Let's look at the first point. David's son and David's Lord. Now, what is the significance of Christ himself speaking, sending his angel, sending the spirit, sending the church, his messengers? That is what you and I are. We are a different kind of angel. We are messengers of the throne sent by God through the work of the spirit to say these things. The invitation of the gospel includes not only a an invitation to come, but there is a content as it relates to the character, the identity, and the call of Christ. First, Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Now, John here is writing to a church that is persecuted not only by Roman pagans, but by Jewish apostates. And this is what the Jews said of Christ. He is not king of us. He is an idolater. He is a son of devil, a worker of iniquity, and he is to be put to death by the beast, the Roman Empire. They did not welcome Christ as king, but he is. He is the covenant redeemer. He is the one of whom David said, he is my son and my Lord. Now, the significance of those two things is that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament who comes after those men, those central characters in the Old Testament who are types and signs, shadows of the one who would come. And in the same way that David was a type, was a king, Christ is a king. In the way that Moses was a kind of judge and leader and deliverer of Israel, so is Christ. In the same way that Noah was a preacher and the one who built that place of refuge into which the family of God went for safety, so too is Christ. There are many small M messiahs in the Old Testament. And they all point to the saving work of Christ, his identity and what is necessary for us to be saved. And so David, when he receives the covenant promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to him and says, I will give to you a son who will sit on your throne forever and ever. And it is not Solomon. It is the Messiah, the big M Messiah, And so Jesus in Matthew 22 says, well, well, in a moment he'll speak. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer the question. Do you know why? 
because they did not understand the necessity that the Redeemer be a man. They understood his exalted nature, but not his humble nature as a person, a real human person. Now, why is it necessary that Christ be a man? So that he might take away our sins as a man. A like sacrifice for those whose sins need to be taken away. David understood this in some fashion because God revealed it to David. The Pharisees did not understand it because they did not understand the covenant. They were breakers of the word of God, violators of the covenant, idolaters in their own hearts. And so, as you and I go out into the world, the one whom we present to the world is the rightful king, the only king of heaven and earth. He is the messianic king. He is a king who brings life from death. Not only is he the offspring, but he is the root. What is the root? What comes first? The chicken or the egg? (laughs) The seed or the apple? Well, that which brings forth life. In my home, the chicken, of course, comes first. And then the egg. The seed gets put into the ground and it brings forth life. Christ is the one out of which... All of the covenant promises of the Father are yes and amen. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the origin. He is the fulfillment. All of it is satisfied through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a theological richness here that may be you know, sort of picked at and worked out even in Sunday school in a moment. But what we need to understand is the reason why God's covenant promises are yes and amen is because the covenant was not made with us. It was made with Christ. And because Christ is the root and he is holy and sinless and God who dwells in infinite light and power, he can bring about the very things promised because he is powerful to fulfill it. He is the one who then brings life from death. He is the offspring of the stump we read elsewhere in Scripture. Because if it were up to us, right, we would have no power in and of ourselves to produce real saving faith, real life. It must be granted to us, given to us by the one who is the light, who is the life. And so as we go out into the world, what we proclaim to men... Is the salvation of the king. And he rides forth to battle. He rides forth to salvation. He is the one of whom Isaiah says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, read, of the increase of his kingdom, his Davidic kingdom... And peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward. Not only is he the one who is the fulfillment of all the Father's covenant promises, he is the one upon whom the government is built that will never pass away. Now I've said this again and again. In the same way that Christ was sufficient to bring about the fulfillment of his mission, the person 
of this, the second person of the Godhead, was there ever a chance that Christ would not be successful? If you say yes, you do not understand the scriptures. Right? Is the Spirit any less powerful to bring about the fulfillment of his mission to establish a kingdom that will never end? If you say yes, you do not understand the scriptures. What I mean by that is this. What God has designed will be fulfilled. And so there are many in the church today, and God bless him, I, I, I find, I admire him and respect him a lot. As much as I love John MacArthur, he lives in a way in which he often does not profess. And what he said the other day in the pulpit is, we lose down here. That is 100% incorrect. What he is saying is this. That what Christ accomplished, the Spirit cannot actually fulfill in full. I don't think he understands that conclusion. I don't think he would agree with my assessment of what he says. Now, here's the irony of that. He actually lives in a way that doesn't actually align with what he says, which that's wonderful. But the fact of the matter is this. Whatever the Godhead has prescribed to have happen will happen. And this is what is happening. Christ, as the Davidic king, has sent his spirit as the great emissary of the gospel out into the world. And the spirit will not fail to accomplish what purpose? To destroy every remnant of darkness that is left on earth. His government and peace will never end. And they will never cease in their expansion. Now you may say, what does that have to do with the price of the tea in China? It has everything to do with the literal price of the tea in China. Do you know why? Because the gospel will go forth to the nations and what it will bring about is the salvation of everyone who are called, who are named by Christ in those places to bring about the flourishing of righteousness in China. Right? Or is it just America? No. It's everywhere. Somalia, Indonesia. Islam is a passing fad. It will pass away. Why? Because it is a work of the devil to bring about deception to the hearts of men. And Christ will defeat it. And he will do so even to the point as we see later in the book. Well, when I say later, I mean for us in the book of Romans, there will come a time when the very people who said crucify him will be brought back into the fold through the glorious gospel promises of God. Now, I don't know if I'll live to see the day when a mass return of the Jewish people are brought into the church, but here is what I will do. I will proclaim the gospel that makes it possible. And right now, even in places like China, they are leading the way in terms of the expansion of the gospel. And though you may not hear it, there's a reason. Christians in China are less concerned with talking about Christ on social media than they are with living it out in life. Now, that's not a rebuke against people who use social media. The fact of the matter is, right now in China, if you are a public Christian, things can be very difficult. But you know what will happen? 
Do you know why it affects the price of tea in China? Because the gospel brings about full-orbed liberty and glorious light, and the fruit of God's grace is a government of peace. And all men are affected by it. Why would we not take this to the nations then? If we know the king of heaven and earth, the one who brings about life and liberty, why do we sit on it? Which we often do. Well, I don't know if my neighbor will actually respond favorably. Who does? No man responds favorably to this. Your kingdom must come to an end. You must worship Christ as the king. He must supplant you from the throne of your life. The only way you and I give up any authority, any lordship over our lives is how? By the Spirit causing us to see the beauty of Christ's lordship. And that is what comes next. Not only is he the Davidic king, he is the bright and morning star of Jacob. Again, a reference to the fulfillment of the covenant This is what Luke writes. And you, child, is a prophecy. You, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God. With which the day spring from on high has visited. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. This is Christ's mission. He is the one who is the light to give as a guide into the way of peace. Christ later says in the Gospels, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now in Numbers chapter 24, you may know the story of Balaam and his donkey. And Balaam is sent to curse the people of Israel. Well, God sets an angel before him. Balaam does not see the angel, but the donkey does. And the donkey refuses to move through the path because there is a a terrifying agent of God standing in the gap. And Balaam begins to beat the donkey until the donkey turns around and speaks to Balaam, which is a, a kind of picture of the pastoral ministry, right? Right? If God can speak out of the mouth of a donkey, he can speak out of your mouth. How prepared do you need to be? You need only to see a glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where do you have that vision? In the Word. The reason why we, as we confessed earlier, are unskilled in our evangelism is because we fail to put before ourselves the glorious vision of Christ in the Word. In fact, I can't think of a better book than the book of Revelation to equip you for gospel ministry. And the donkey turns around and says, why are you doing this? Until later, God grants Balaam a vision. And Balaam goes out onto the edge of the cliff, and his one mission is to do what? To curse Israel. But every time he opens his mouth, all he can speak are blessings. And this is what he says. So he took the oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now I behold him. 
but not near. It's a prophecy of the one who will come. He is not near, but he sees him. A star shall come out of Jacob. That's Israel. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also his enemies shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Who is Balaam talking about that he sees as though he is here? He sees Christ Jesus. He sees the bright and morning star of Jacob. He is not talking about the Old Testament nation of Israel. He is talking about the new covenant church under the leadership of Christ Jesus. And what happens through Christ's reign on earth through the church? We shall do valiantly. What does that mean? We win. We win. Now, we might not all go to the grave winning. Some of us go, it feels like we're losing. Churches are shuttered. Some of them go liberal. Ministers die. How many men who have gone to the grave confessing Christ, yet we confess what? It is out of the blood of martyrs that we find the seat of the church. Why does the church continue It is because there is a star that comes from Jacob, the bright and morning star, the one who shines light in the dark places. And as soon as you hear the light, what do you think of? You can't not think of John chapter 1, can you? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, and all through him might believe. He was not that light, that is John, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. We read of the eternal Logos, the Word made flesh. Christ, the word of God, by whom all that was made has been made, and through Christ, all is remade. And what Christ is doing now is he is saying to the church, your mission of dominion, this great commission to repair the ruins, is only possible if the builder is the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator. As Athanasius says in his book on the Incarnation, only the one who can make all things or has made all things is the one who's able to remake all things. He knows how to do it. He knows because he has seen the Father and he bears witness to us of what the Father is like and what the purposes of God are. He is the life and light of men. And he is, in his providence, dawning... Upon the nations. He is the one. To whom the nations will go. For salvation. Because he is the offspring of David. The light of Jacob. He is the eternal Logos. The light of the world. Who brings about the fulfillment of all of the promises of the father. So what is our response? Well we need to come to the light. 
We need to lead with the light. And as Christ is the light of the world, we come to him and we proclaim him. As Paul would say to the church in Corinth who were struggling with issues of unity and pride and spiritual apathy, I came preaching Christ and him crucified, the gospel of light. And that leads me then to my final point. An evangelistic, I'm sorry, an evangelistic invitation. Now this invitation here is distinct from the invitation that John gave to Christ. Come quickly, come. And when John says come quickly, he's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about Christ coming in judgment over Israel. And he says, Lord, come and bring justice upon those who put you to death, who denied you. And he did. This is also not the invitation that is delivered earlier in this chapter in verse 11 and 12 where Christ says, come, you have a very, very small window. This is the evangelistic, this is what makes us evangelical, by the way. This is the invitation of the evangelical church to the whole world that while Christ tarries to return... We go out into the world and say, get on the boat, the judgment of God is coming. Come into his house and flee from the wrath that is to come. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Our invitation is, get out of that place that is passing away. Come and be reconciled to God. Come through Jesus Christ. So that we confess, we are the light of the world. Now, why are we the light of the world? Well, we are not on our own. There is nothing different about us than the people who denied Christ. Right? We are the same. If it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I are Christ deniers. We follow our own law. We invent our own rules. And so it is not just an invitation from the church. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the bride, that's us, say come. And let him who hears say come. And let him who thirsts come. Here is what you are required to possess as one who says come. That you have heard someone else say come. That's it. If you can parrot, not insincerely, but sincerely, the message of the gospel of Christ as the king of all the earth, the one who brings about light and salvation, then all you have to do is go out into the world and say, Christ is king, he is the light of the world, flee to him for refuge, find salvation in him. That's it. As far as you are concerned, what is also necessary in order for this work to have fruit is that the spirit say that as well. So when I say to you today, come, and I say it, I've said it a number of times, and I'll say it again before I'm done, my hope, my prayer, my confidence is that the Spirit is also saying to you in a voice that goes beyond mine, that is the very voice of God in that internal testimony, that silent call, as it were, come. And you can do one of two things. Okay. You can flee to Christ for salvation. Or you can say, no. No. I love my sin. I love love this life of rebellion to God. 
But whoever comes, <clears throat> what does Christ say? Whoever desires, who's thirsty, come and it's free. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says. Come and take and eat and drink without money, without price. Why? How is it free? Well, it is costly to Christ. Christ opened the way that we could not open. And so for 2,000 years, the Spirit has been let loose on the world. And what we find is that the Spirit's power and by His calling, millions upon millions upon millions of people have heeded the invitation. They have been granted the ability to say, I want what Christ has to offer me. So when we go out into the world, our invitation is not an impotent invitation, but it is a particular invitation. It is to come to Christ, believe upon Christ, hope in him, trust in him, receive him as the only savior of your sins. And this is our invitation. Come to the king, Come to the light, and you will be saved. You will be satisfied. This is what we do. This is the beginning and middle and end of all of our ministry. And it also constitutes even the ministry of Christian discipleship. For every day, there is a path laid before you. Christ or the world. Christ or what? As we see in Revelation, the beast. Will I walk in a way that is consistent as Christ is Lord of my life, or will I forsake him and go my own way? It is the way of Christ or is the way of the flesh. But it is always Christ. The Spirit is even now at work in the world applying the sufficiency, the merits of Christ's redeeming work so that when you and I are transformed, we are wholly justified in Christ Jesus. And that does what? It gets us started in a life of saving faith, walking, living, testifying. Because it isn't just the Spirit, it's the bride. It's the one who hears and it is for the one who thirsts. So the invitation is to two types of people this morning. First, for those who have satiated their thirst from the fount of Christ's redeeming work, you need to continue to bear witness to that. This is to the Christian. Say, come. That's it. Come. And then let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. But for those who have not come, for those of you who have not tasted and drunk, who have not been satisfied on Christ's redeeming work, the invitation is what? Do so right now. And in light of what I preached on last week, if you weren't here, it's basically this. You have no guarantee that you will have another chance to repent. It's today. It's now. Do it. Come to Christ, and what will he do? He will not say, no. He loves to share. 
And the testimony of his mercy and lavish affection is that you and I are here. We are the faithful testimony of Christ's redeeming mercy. Come and take the living water. Let's pray.